Good morning, everybody. How the heck are you? It's raining. Pretty cool. Love the rain. I actually just skipped the 9 o'clock service. I just wanted to stay at home and sit in my PJs and watch the rain, but I, I got here in time. It was so tempting. Um, so, I'm Pastor Mark, one of the pastors on staff here. If you're visiting, welcome. So glad you're here. Uh, two, the 4th, 5th, and 6th graders are up the hill at camp, and I think they got the uh, leaders outnumbered 3 to 1. So be praying for the leaders. Their lives could be in danger as we speak. Didn't mean that with the snow. It just meant in fun. Um, also, Pastor John, as you know, will be here next weekend to preach at all three services. I'm really excited about that. I uh, talked to PJ yesterday on the phone, and he says, how's it going? And I said, well, people are still showing up. And I says, I don't know if it's because I'm doing well or they're waiting for me to break out of my slump and they want to be there when it happens. Um, but, uh, yeah, excited for him. Keep praying for him. Uh, traveling mercies, and I'm sure he's still putting some final touches on his message. So really, really, really thrilled that they're finally going to be here this weekend. And then I think, as you know, they'll be back again in, um, in April. So I think we got that covered. Good? Jump into Mark. We're in the book of Mark, chapter 1. We got through about 13 verses last week, and I say about because we, there was a few verses we didn't quite hit on, and I'm going to hit on those this morning. So while you're turning to the book of Mark, chapter 1, let me open up with this. A poet could take a worthless sheet of paper, write a poem on it, and make it worth thousands of dollars. That's genius. Uncle Sam can take paper, stamp an image on both sides of it, and make it worth 5, 10, 20, 50, 100, or more dollars. And that's called money. A mechanic can take material that's worth maybe a few pennies or maybe even a few dollars and make it worth much, much more. That's skill. Donald Trump could sign his name to a piece of paper and make it worth millions of dollars. That's capital. An artist can take a cheap piece of canvas, paint a picture on it, and make it worth thousands of dollars. That's art. God can take a worthless, sinful life, you and I, wash it in the blood of Christ, put His Spirit in it, and make it a blessing to humanity. That's salvation and discipleship. In the book of Mark, I want to recap the first 13 verses that we hit on last week. So we're just going to skim through, starting in verse 1. So Mark opens up and he says, this is the gospel of Jesus, the good news, the guy that had been prophesied about, he's here. As was written by Isaiah, and as we learned last week, Malachi, and that's verses 2 and 3, behold, John the Baptist is preparing a way for this Messiah. And so John appears in verse 4, and he's preaching, in, 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 and he's dressed like a prophet, and that's what he is, right? John the Baptist is prophesying that Jesus is coming. And so he's having people confess their sins, and he's baptizing them in the Jordan. And he says, one is coming after me, Jesus, who's much greater than I am. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. And then in verse 9, Jesus comes indeed in verse 9 from Nazareth. And he comes to Galilee, and he's baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately the Spirit descends upon him, and God's voice cries out, this is my beloved Son. And that's kind of where we left it last week. So what I want to review from last week, if you remember, we discussed three things last week. The identification of the Messiah, where we looked at his titles, that Jesus was titled in, in the first couple of verses of chapter 1, uh, 
the Christ, Jesus the Christ, or Jesus the Messiah, which we learned meant the Anointed One, or the Anointed King. And then the other title that was given to Him was Son of God. And then we looked at the testimonies in these first 11 verses. The testimony of Mark, who wrote the Gospel. The testimony of John the Baptist, who's preparing the way of Jesus. Malachi from 400 B.C. Isaiah from 700 B.C. The Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus, and and God the Father speaking, saying, This is my Son. And so those are the testimonies. And then we talked about the name of Jesus, meaning the Lord saves. And so that's the identification of the Messiah for us to understand, as Mark wants us to, that indeed this Messiah is here. And then we talked about the preparation. That was the second thing, the preparation of the messenger, John the Baptist, who is preparing our way to make ready the Lord's way in our lives. Being prepared each day, not just in that day, but being prepared each and every day in order to encounter our Lord. Waking up every day, wanting and and giving ourselves the ability to have an encounter with Jesus Christ every day. And then the third thing is how Jesus altered the masses. There's a worldwide disease called sin, and every day people are dying from it. And Jesus is the cure. And so those are the three things we looked at last week. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that you do with us exactly what you desire to do and that we would get out of the way and trust you in that process. Lord, our eyes are fixed on you and upon your word. And we're so excited to hear what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. So let's pick up at verse 12. Let's read from verse 12 to verse 28. So the... the, The dove comes and the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in verse 11 and and God's voice cries out, this is my beloved son, verse 12, and immediately he gets to work. The Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Verse 14, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying this, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Powerful words. Verse 16. And as he was going along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. And Jesus said, Follow me. I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 19. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boats mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. Verse 21, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Yet another identification of Jesus as the Son of God, the Holy One. Verse 25, And Jesus rebuked him, and he said, Be quiet and come out of him. Verse 26, Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out. And they were amazed and they, they, that they debated among themselves, saying, Who is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Benjamin Franklin has a poem. It's short. I'll read it to you. It says, 
If you would not be forgotten, as soon as you are dead and rotten, either write things worth reading or do things worth writing. The great end of life is not knowledge, but action. That's fantastic. We're called to discipleship. We're not called to be here to gain knowledge, but to be active for Christ, as Jesus was, and we're going to unpack in these verses. One commentary says this, that the biblical writers, those that penned these words, the biblical writers, because they worshipped a dynamic God, not a static God, a dynamic God that's always moving, who's always at work, because we worship and they worship a dynamic God, they confront us with a dynamic view of history, biblical history. They did not interpret history as a theoretical, I'm sorry, as a theatrical performance to which we can contribute only as an audience. They saw it rather as the arena of action of our sovereign Lord, action of life and death and destiny. They saw it as the sphere in which God accepts and rejects people and nations on the basis of their response, their actions to his gracious offer of faith and freedom in fellowship. Can I get an amen? Three things we're going to unpack this morning. Three things. We're going to look at the actions of Jesus. We're going to explore the authority of Jesus and then the acceptance of our discipleship. First, the action of Jesus. Right, if, right out of verse 10 and 11, Holy Spirit comes down, Jesus, or the Lord says, this is my son, and boom. Jesus spent zero time basking in the glory of the heavenly voice. Like, did everybody hear that? I am that guy. Everybody get it, right? Didn't do that. He doesn't spend time basking in the glory of the heavenly voice or the presence of the heavenly dove. The servant had a task to perform, and so he immediately went off to perform his task. As we jump into the text, we must keep in mind the themes that we discussed last week that Mark covers in his gospel. We talked about five themes in the gospel of Mark. Let me just give them to you real quick. The gospel of God, that's one theme. The kingdom of God is the second theme. Jesus as the authoritative Christ is the third thing. But Jesus as the servant of Christ is the fourth. And the fifth thing is our call, our call for cross-bearing discipleship. So that's what we have in mind here. In other words, in our verses for today, we examine the action and the activity of Jesus because Mark wants us to know certainly who he is, what he does, And that he is indeed Jesus, the Savior of the world. But wait, we don't stop there. Or do we? Is that where we stop with this knowledge of who Jesus is? Do we simply study and examine the life of Christ in order to shore up what we know about him? Is that why we do it? To affirm this. Yep, it's Jesus. Whoo! I'm glad I put that to rest. I have put my trust in Him. I'm so thankful for Him. Can't wait to spend eternity with Him. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Is that what it's about? Why else do we examine the action and the activity of Jesus? Why? We examine the action and activity of Jesus because He models for us the way that we are called to be in relationship to the Lord and the action and the activity that is to be manifest in our lives as followers of Him. That makes sense, right? 
here's, let's take, a, we're going to do a cursory glance at verses 12 through 28. This is fun. This is perhaps how sometimes we either do or would like to see our Christianity. Start at verse 12. We're going to have some fun with this. Verse 12, immediately the Spirit impelled him to go. Oh, he's led by the Spirit. Then in verse 13, at the end, angels were ministering to him. Oh, how sweet. He has guardian angels. And then verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Oh, he's spreading the good news. In verses 16 through 20, Simon and Andrew, along with James and John, they decided to follow him. They committed their lives to Christ. He has followers and people want to be like Jesus. Oh, that's so cool. In verse 21 and 22, he goes into the synagogue and he begins to teach and they were amazed at his teaching. Oh, he was a gifted and amazing teacher. So talented. In verse 25, Jesus rebuked the the unclean spirit and says, Come out of him. Oh, Jesus casts out demons. In verse 28, news about him spread everywhere. He became popular. That's a pretty passive gospel when you just look at it that way. And I'm being kind of tongue-in-cheek with this whole thing because there's some things missing here that we didn't hit on, right? What's the first thing? The Spirit, in verse 12, impelled him. It says drove him. Sometimes we're driven by the Spirit to do things. So the Spirit impelled him to partake in 40 days of brutal testing. Sometimes God puts us through those same kind of tests, doesn't he? So the Spirit impelled him to partake of 40 days of brutal testing, a showdown, if you will, with Satan and wild beasts, all in the beautiful setting of this place called the wilderness. Sounds like some of our lives, at certain parts of our lives, right? And the second thing that we're missing is he was preaching the same gospel in verse 14 that John had been preaching that was, he was taken into custody. He was arrested and put into prison. That's the gospel that he's preaching. John's put in prison. I'm going to go preach the gospel. The same one that John just got put in prison for. And the third thing is that his teaching in the synagogues later in the text, though done with authority, led to conflict with evil spirits as well as scribes and Pharisees and rulers. In short, all that Jesus was doing, his activity and his action was nothing more but nothing less than what God had called him to do. That's his job, to fulfill his calling. But we're no different. So the movement of Jesus, Jesus moved. Jesus was active for the Lord, for what he was called to do. There's seven verbs, the magnificent seven in these verses. Verse 12, immediately it says in verse 12, the Spirit impelled him to what? To go. Verse 14, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus what? He came to Galilee. Verse 16, as he was going along the Sea of Galilee. So he goes in verse 12. He came in verse 14. In verse 16, he was going along the Sea of Galilee. In verse 19, going a little further. In verse 21, they went into Capernaum. And later in verse 21, he entered the synagogue. And then in verse 24, the demon says, Have you come to do business with me? Jesus is coming and going and entering and leaving, and he's active. That's the activity, the movement of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus looks something like this. In verse 12, we see 40 days being tempted in the wilderness. Jesus' sinlessness does not rule out the fact that he was actually tempted and tested. In fact, it bears witness to his true humanity. To be tested means to be put to the test in order to, listen, to ascertain, to determine the nature of someone, including their imperfections, their faults, and other qualities. 
That's the refiner's fire that God works out the impurities of our lives. Or as my friend Pastor Jim says, God's got his fingers all up in my clay and he's, he's working out the impurities of our clay. And so God allows that to happen, to work that, to reveal it to us and to work that out of us. I propose that the Lord tests us and allows it to happen in order to reveal and deliver us, to reveal and deliver us from our faults and our imperfections in order to prepare us then for whatever ministry He calls us to. Makes sense, right? Hebrews 2.18. This is fantastic. 2.17 and 18, I think. Therefore, He, Christ, had to be made like us in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God. Verse 18, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of you and I in the same way. Praise God. We are not alone. It's a high calling, but a calling that we're called to and that we're empowered to and that has been led by example through Christ. So that's one of the ministries that we see in this context. Another is uh, Galilee, preaching the gospel. In verse 14, he goes into Galilee and he preaches the gospel. I propose that the spread of the gospel was and is of supreme importance to the Lord. Should it also then be important to us? For sure. So we're starting to build. What are, we are, what are we about as a church? We're going to go through hardship because the Lord's going to work things out in our lives, right? And so we're going to be a gospel-preaching church. We're going to preach the gospel here, the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what we have to do. And then in verses 16 and 19, he goes and he makes disciples of these two brothers, right? So we're going to invite people. We're, not, we're going to share the gospel. We're going to invite them to become disciples and to follow Jesus, whether it's at this church or God calls them to another church. But we want to invite people to be disciples and to be followers of Jesus. And in verse 21, he goes from preaching. Now he goes to teaching. In verse 21, he goes into Capernaum and he teaches in the synagogue. And so we've got to be a church that teaches the word of God. I will do that here. We'll do it in our HBFs. We're going to do it in our adult, uh, adult education that we're launching which is going to come up a little bit later in the service. So we're going to be, we have to teach the Word of God. As you know, at the Rock Community Church, we hold the highest view of Scripture that one can hold, that it is the authoritative and inerrant Word of God. Can I get an amen? Amen. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture, not most of it, not a lot of it, not a good chunk of it, all of it is inspired by God. It's God-breathed. And it's profitable. You want to turn a profit in your life? Let me tell you how to do it. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that you and I are not just adequate. It doesn't say adequate, period. It says adequate, comma, so that we are adequate, equipped for every good work that he's called us to as disciples of his. So that's another thing. In verse 24, it says that he's doing business with demons helping people. We need to be a church that helps people become free from the stronghold of the enemy. Can I get an amen? All of us were in the stronghold of the enemy at one point in our lives. Every one of us. Jesus had some business to do with demons. Oh, we got business. If indeed one theme that we mentioned in the Gospel of Mark is the, the theme, the kingdom of God, then it makes sense that he who ushered in this kingdom is doing the work that he was assigned to do, for sure. What about you? What about me? If someone were to write a gospel or a letter of your life, what sort of movement, what sort of action, what sort of activity would we be reading about? 
Isn't that a great question? What would that look like? What would your gospel look like? What would the letter of your life look like? What kingdom or whose kingdom are we busy building? I'm guilty. I'm so guilty. I never type anything I'm not guilty of myself. I get it. I spent a lot of time either building my own or just not building God's. Lord, help us, right? So that's the actions of Jesus. Let's now talk about the authority of Jesus. And the key point in the authority of Jesus is that the Word of God and the works of God, the Word of God and the works go hand in hand. Let's unpack that. Go back to scene 1, verse 12. This is our first scene in this text. Verse 12 and 13. The Spirit drives him to go out into the wilderness. And he was there 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Does anybody want to know how did he do? Like you read, it's like he went out for 40 days and he came back and the angels ministered to him. Well, did he get his butt kicked? Like what happened? Turn to Matthew 4, 1 through 11. It's also found in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. But we're going to turn to Matthew to our left. How did he do? Mark, I'm glad you told me that he, got, he was out there getting beat up. But how did he do? Again, we're focusing on the authority of Jesus, the word and our work going hand in hand. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Yeah, I get it. So he's at his weakest. This is a time for Satan to pounce. And what happens? The tempter came and said to him, If, liar, what a liar, right? If you are the Son of God. He is the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But what does he do? He says, it is written. And he responds with the word of God because his works have to be hinged upon the words of God. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him. So that was strike one. The devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. His angels will take care of you and their hands will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Verse seven, Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Strike two. Verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms and said, they're yours if you would just fall down and worship me. Go, Satan, for it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil split and the angels ministered to him. Turn to Deuteronomy, not turn, look at the screen. Deuteronomy 32. Moses is given his farewell chat in the book of Deuteronomy. Which, by the way, I'd encourage you guys to try if you could. Uh, did anybody get a chance to read the book of Mark all in one sitting? Is anybody in the service? We had like four in the Saturday night service and I forgot to ask at 9 a.m. Okay. It's, it's hard. But if, I would still encourage you. We're still early in the book of Mark. If you have the time, try to take about an hour to sit down and read the entire book of Mark. You'll love it. I banged through Deuteronomy this week, but don't hate me for that. All 34 chapters of Deuteronomy this week on my reading schedule was fantastic. So this is why this rang true for me. Deuteronomy 32. Moses came in his farewell speech to the whole nation of Israel and he spoke these words in a song in the hearing of the people, him and Joshua, who was going to lead after him. When Moses had finished speaking all these words to Israel, he said to them, take to your heart all the words which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law. Verse 47. For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. 
The Word of God and the works of our lives go hand in hand. The Word of God is life-giving, life-breathing. It is our very life. And by this Word, you will prolong your days in the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. So that's one of the things that we talk about, the authority of Jesus. In scene 2, going back to the book of Mark, in scene 2 is verse 14 and 15. So Jesus in 12 and 13, with authority, he responds to his testing and to his tempting. And then he goes out right after that, and with authority, he preaches the gospel in Galilee. That's scene 2. In scene 3 is verses 21 and 22, where Jesus went and immediately on the Sabbath, in verse 21, he entered the synagogue and began to teach, and they were amazed because he was teaching as one, have an authority. And so that's scene 3 on the authoritative word of God in his life. Jesus, listen to this church, Jesus had a grip on the word of God. Jesus had a grip on the word of God. Well, is it because he's Jesus and that's just unfair? He had a grip on the word of God. He spoke it, he responded in life with it, he preached it and he teached it, even though I don't think that's the right word, teached it, but I liked it because it goes with preached it. He preached it, he teached it, he responded with it, he spoke it, he lived his life. His works and his ways went hand in hand with his words. Turn to Luke chapter 2, because it's not just because Jesus was Jesus. Turn to Luke chapter 2. Jesus worked very hard to get a handle on the word of God as a young man. Luke 2:39. We're talking about Jesus' parents here. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. The child, Jesus, continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12, 12, what were we doing when we were 12? When he was 12, um, they went up there according to the custom of the feast, and they were returning after spending the full number of days there. And the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it. They supposed that he was in a caravan. And they were about a day's journey away, and they began to look for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. After three days, they finally found him. Where? In the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Twelve. So that's the authority of the Word in Jesus' life. Now let's take a look at the authority of His ways, the authority of His works, because of the authority of the Word in His life. The first thing we want to look at is that we've already been there in Mark 1. He overcame Satan in the wilderness. The first Adam, Adam in the book of Genesis, was tested in a beautiful garden. And how did Adam do? F. Adam got an F. Adam got an F. He failed. Why? He did not adhere to God's word when Satan says, did God really say? Yeah, man, that's what he said. That's what he said. He didn't adhere to God's word, though, so Adam failed. Jesus was tempted, not in a beautiful garden, but in a dangerous wilderness. But he had victory. Why? Because he did adhere to God's word. When he said three times to Satan, it is written, it is written, it is written, strike three, you're out. 
If ever, like Jesus, if ever we need the Word of God, it must surely be like Jesus was when we're most vulnerable, when the temptation is the strongest, when the enemy is the fiercest, and we are at our weakest. Boy, that's the time we really need the Word of God. Amen? So that's the first thing we see in this authority of Jesus in the ways in, the, uh, in His works. Two, He spread the gospel in Galilee. He spread the gospel in verses 14 and 15. Three, He impacted lives to follow His And so we see that in verses 16 through 20, when Peter and Andrew and James and John follow him. But this was not their initial call to faith and salvation. It was an initial call to discipleship. Several months before, Jesus had already met these four men, and they had come to trust him. And so we we come to trust in Jesus, and then we then um, respond to discipleship, following Jesus. He was able to teach and shape the lives of God's people at the synagogue in Capernaum. So he's preaching and now he's teaching and he's shaping lives. Five, he was able to recognize and rebuke unclean spirits and help set others free. Interesting, that amazing teaching with authority is what caused the demon to cry out. It was amazing teaching with authority that caused the demon to cry out. And it says there that he was teaching as one having authority in verse 22 and not as the scribes. Ouch. Wouldn't want to be a scribe in that verse. What's a scribe? Huh. It's an expert interpreter and teacher of a body of writings, usually the Word of God. No authority whatsoever. It's been said that scribes spoke from authority, but Jesus spoke with authority. And the reason is is because Jesus allowed the Word to affect His works, and scribes did not. That's the difference. I promise you, church, I will never take this pulpit and speak from authority. I just can't do it. I can't speak from authority, but boy, I will speak with authority because I've spent time with God and I'm allowing His Word to affect my works and my ways. I wonder how long that man had been hanging out in the synagogue under that condition and a pathetic working of the Word of these scribes and the other teachers, a pathetic connection between their words and their works allowed him to just remain comfortably. And so, and so I propose that we have that happen in our lives sometimes. We have stuff in our lives. These demons or these spirits or these nasty things in our lives, they don't go anywhere because we haven't allowed the authority of God's Word to completely grip our lives so that when it does, those demons got to split and say, what business do we have with each other? we got no more business anymore. God's Word's running my life. Turn to James chapter 1. It's after Hebrews, towards the end of the New Testament. After Hebrews, you'll find the book of James, chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 21. Good stuff. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility... We need to humble ourselves like never before. In humility, we need to receive the word implanted, which is able to save our lives. Verse 22, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers. He doesn't say don't be a hearer. He just says do not merely be hearers who delude themselves. So in verse 21, when it says, therefore, put put filthiness aside, in humility, receive the word implanted. The word receive means to accept and to react, which is action, activity, right? To accept and to react favorably to that word. To consider it right and proper, right and proper for our lives. 
Verse 22, he says, be doers, not hearers. Hearer means someone who listens attentively. Is it good to listen attentively to the Word of God? Nod your heads. Yes. Is it enough to listen attentively to the Word of God? No. I helped you guys on that one, okay? He says, be doers and not merely hearers. That would be like me going around and saying, oh, Tanya, it appears you're merely a hearer. That's so sad. Oh, Bruce, you're a doer of God's word. Congratulations. Oh, Jeff, I think you're just merely a hearer. I mean, it's good that you're hearing, but you're just merely a hearer. Can you imagine if we had tags on us that said, I'm just merely a hearer. I want to be a doer, but I'm just not. I'm just merely a hearer. Do you guys want to merely be hearers? It's good to listen attentively, right? Of course. But if we stop there, we're just merely a hearer. I'm just a hearer. I'm not a doer. Verse 22 says they'll delude themselves. Don't merely be a hearer who delude themselves. Check this out. Delude means delusional. It's to cleverly deceive. We do this, man. I'm telling you, we do this. When we want to be disobedient in something else, like we're building somebody else's kingdom, (laughs) to cleverly deceive, to deceive with subtle and often misleading reasoning. Mm, Lord, help us. Continue, verse 23. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. Once he's looked at himself and gone, He's completely forgotten what kind of person he was. Verse 25, But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, the word and works, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. I shared this in the first two services last night and this morning, and I'll share it again. I am blessed in what I do. I've known the Lord for 36 years since I was 15. My life hasn't been peaches and cream. I've had hardship that I wouldn't wish on anybody. But I'm telling you, I live a charmed life. I live a charmed life. I don't get it. I just do. And I believe it's because I hear attentively and I do His Word as best as I know how. Am I getting better at it? Of course. Will I ever be done improving? Never. Look again. He says, one who looks intently at the perfect law, what's it called? The law of what? Looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty. I wrote this note. My Bible's old. I got duct tape on it. I'm so proud of my duct tape. I wrote here however many years ago, being a doer brings liberty. So often we get it wrong. All these restrictions. No, it's not. God came to set us free. Being a doer of his word brings liberty. It's a law of liberty. Everything else is bondage. Third thing, as we wrap this up, the acceptance of discipleship. Will we accept the offer of discipleship that's talked about in Mark 1? Like Andrew and Peter and and James and John. The acceptance of discipleship. We know these verses. Jesus walks by, says, follow me. They leave their stuff and they go follow him. What the heck does that mean? Three things. Discipleship requires following. I wish I could be more brilliant than that. That's what it says. It requires following. But let me explain to you what following means. It means to accept and follow the leadership and commands or guidance of someone or something. It literally means to follow in their footsteps is what that word means to follow Jesus. What's Jesus doing? 
Okay, I'm, I'm going to follow right. Whatever he does and whatever he says, that's what I'm going to do. That's what it means to follow Jesus, to follow in his footsteps. What we don't have time to cover is when a rabbi, would, uh, when a young man would want to become a rabbi, he would go to another rabbi uh, uh, and say, can I follow you? Can I follow you? Can I follow you? Can I follow you? Until a rabbi would take him and he would follow him for years to learn how to walk in his steps. And Jesus invites us. He says, I'll be your rabbi. To every one of you, follow me. I want to be your rabbi. So discipleship requires following. It also requires leaving, as these verses tell us. They left their boats. They left their stuff. They left. It requires leaving. To leave means to leave behind, to depart and not take along three ways, or either intentionally, neglectfully, or forgetfully. Right? When we leave, when we follow Jesus, there are some things that we just need to leave behind. The first category is intentionally. There's going to be some things when we follow Jesus, we're going to have to be really intentional about. It's going to take a lot of time, energy, blood, sweat, sweat and tears, whatever it takes. There's going to be some things that we're going to have to be really intentional about following Jesus. Then there's some things that we're just going to neglect because being a follower of his, some things just get neglected. It's like, yeah, I, I'll eventually change it well on my car. Yeah, I'll eventually take out the trash. But I'm reading God's word right now. I'm praying. And so sometimes we're, we just need to neglect some stuff, and that's okay. And then the third category is forgetfulness, where we're so busy following Jesus, we just forget about certain things. Like, I, I don't even know why I used to do that. just kind of forgot about it. So we've got to be intentional. Some things we might have to neglect, and some things we're just going to forget about. So we have to leave. We have to follow, and we have to leave. And then the third thing is it requires time. Look in verse 17. Jesus said in verse 17, Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Not follow me and you will be instantly. I will make you become. It's a process. We become fishers of men as he makes us. He says, I will make you. So he creates in us whatever he wants to create in us, whatever gifts he's given us, whatever skills he's given us to advance his kingdom because that's one of the themes in the book of Mark is all about his kingdom. We all have different ministries as he determines in his discipleship-making process. Our responsibility is to follow and to leave. Surely the good qualities of successful fishermen would make for success in the difficult ministry of winning lost souls, which, oh, by the way, is one of the things we're here to do. Courage. A fisherman has courage. The ability to work together. So the Bible talks about unity. We have to be unified. And when that starts to break down, enemies get in a stronghold, and that's taken away from the focus of the church. So the ability to work together. Patience. Energy, stamina, faith, tenacity. Professional fishermen simply could not afford to be quitters or complainers. We get a lot of those in church. One of the largest people groups in North America are unchurched Christians. I actually think there's now more unchurched Christians than there are churched Christians. Complaining and quitting. There's no room for that. Boy, I didn't share that in the other two verses. I should have. That was good. I like that. But it's true. We complain and we quit. There's no room for that to be a follower of his, to be fishermen for souls. Jesus' call of four fishermen, these two pairs of brothers, to be his followers comes immediately after his summary uh, message of repenting and believing in the gospel. What that means is we are to break 
with our old way of life and follow Jesus, to make a personal commitment to Him and to respond to His call so that our action and our activity look like His. That's what it means. That's what we're called to. Therefore, church, we must always be repenting and believing. Repenting and believing. Repenting of what? Repenting of putting trust in ourselves. Repenting of the words that we feed ourselves. And believing and putting our trust into Him and into His Word so that our works are driven by His words. So that our words and the work of God go hand in hand. We need to repent from trusting our ways and trust His ways. That's why we study Jesus. Let me close with this. I'm going to close with this and then I'm going to pray. And when I'm praying, uh, Pastor Dave will work his way up while I'm praying. little poem here. If God can hang the stars on high, can paint the clouds that drift on by, can send the sun across the sky, what could he do through you? If he can send a storm through space and dot with trees a mountain's face, If he, the sparrow's way, can trace, what could he do through you? If God can do such little things as count our hairs or birds that sing, control the universe that swings, what could he do through you? Isn't that fantastic? What a high calling we have. So thankful. Let me pray. God, thank you so much. For your word. Thank you, Lord, that we can preach it and receive it boldly and trust you, Lord. Lord, I pray, as I did earlier, that you would penetrate us exactly where we need to be penetrated and that we would trust you, Lord, that the word of who you are and the works of what you want us to be would go hand in hand, that those cannot be separated. Lord, I pray that we would not merely be hearers, but be doers of your word, but we cannot do that upon our own strength. We need you. We need the power of your Holy Spirit to propel us to do the work of the kingdom. Lord, help us, help us, help us. We desperately need you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, thank you for coming. You guys enjoy the rain.